0: Welcome to Music Biz 101 and more on Brave New Radio WPSC on the campus of William Patterson University. I'm your professor, David Kirk-Philp. And I'm the good Dr. Steve Marconi. Our show is a little different this week, isn't it, Steve? That's right. This show, taken from our spring music management seminar series, features adjunct professor Steve Leeds interviewing Julie Greenwald, COO of Atlantic Records. We'll hear them talk about her status as a successful woman in the male-dominated industry, her management style. And more, but we don't want to give it all away. Listen hard, because there's some great stuff here. Don't you agree, my co-host with the mo-host? Whatever you say. Be sure to go to musicbiz101wp.com to sign up for our newsletter, read about current events in the music industry, and learn more about our podcast. Yes, our podcast is available on Stitcher Radio. You can download Stitcher for free on your iOS or Android device. Stick around and listen to this insightful interview then come back next week at 8 p.m. for another great Music Biz 101 and More radio show. Free advice about the
1: music industry every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock.
0: Take it away Steve Leeds!
1: So this semester we talked about um, the ideas to have some of the most powerful women in the entertainment industry specifically the music industry if you will. So tonight we are really really fortunate because when you look at the list and if you look at the billboard list of the most powerful women in the entertainment music industry, always at the top, at the top, the tippy top, is our guest tonight, um, Julie Greenwald. And I, I'm, I'm really thrilled that she took the time, has the interest to share some of her thoughts and notions with you guys, and we will answer some questions, and that she took the time to do this is, um, and come out here from her very, very busy schedule, as you can imagine, uh, as a chairwoman of a, of a major record label. It's, that's a commitment and we appreciate that, you doing that. Um, I, I've been blessed to know Julie since probably in the mid-90s mm-hmm. um, when we first met, when Julie was uh, a big shot at uh, Def Jam Records. But um, uh, I think one measure of how Julie is as a person comes from a quote with one of her coworkers or one of her subordinates, if you will, and coincidentally, a, a female executive at the company who runs the promotion department, who's been there, I think she predated you, probably. She's been instead. there
2: for 30-something years. Right. Yeah.
1: So she said, quote, and think about this, a more extraordinary executive does not exist. She's smart and remains open. And I think that's really the highest compliment you can get when from one of your coworkers says that about you. And it's a sign of respect, particularly somebody who has been there for that long. And that's Andrea Gannis, who's the uh, Head of uh, Promotion at Atlantic, Um, so I thought that was an interesting way to start things off. And as I usually do, I'll say, um, Julie, can you talk a little bit about how you got where you are today? I know you're from upstate New York originally. Uh Um, This was a career path that you never really thought was going to happen. Nope. So um, if I'm not mistaken, your your family, you grew up, you have. brothers brother. no
2: no I am the third of four daughters so I wasn't the oldest I um, wasn't the middle child I was the one that um, by the time I came around you know I was the one that probably got the least attention and then the baby happened so I became the classic overachiever right I had to get noticed somehow so um, I you know was a really great student and was captain of every sports team and president of everything and I um, ended up picking a school based on the weather Um, (laughs) I um, didn't like cold weather so um, you know my parents were generous enough to say you could pick whatever um, university you wanted to go to and um, I chose Tulane so I could go um, be in the south have great weather and a great city and um, it was a fantastic four years because New Orleans is unbelievable and um, I was both poli-sci and English major and um, I did a lot of volunteer work um, I soup kitchens um, shelters I worked on campaigns um, I worked I interned for Senator John Bro. I thought my future was I was gonna be a lobbyist I wanted to end up in DC um, and um, So I figured I'd go to law school at some point, and um, I read about a program that just started called Teach for America. So I um, applied, I was like the second year in, and um, I asked to be stationed in New Orleans, and I ended up in Caliope Projects, which is um, right down from Central Lockup. And um, it was an incredibly difficult experience, and it was super challenging because the whole premise was, let's take really smart kids and ask them to volunteer. It wasn't, hey, let's get really qualified teachers to go teach. So um, I, it, was definitely, uh, it was definitely a tough experience for me. And um, it was right out of a movie. I went into an all-African American school as this, you know, 20-year-old white Jewish woman from the Catskills. And, um, and I loved it, but I also had, it was tough. So I came home that summer looking for a break to get out of New Orleans, because I normally have really curly Jewish hair. And no white Jewish woman stays down in New Orleans during the summertime, because you have a Jew fro. So <laughs> I left New Orleans for the summertime to get out of the humidity and um, moved to New York City to be closer to my boyfriend. and. Um, Uh, My cousin who was working at Rush Management said there is a um, job opening. Uh, The guy who runs Rush Management is looking for an assistant. So I thought, oh, what a great summer job. I could assist this guy, be in New York City, be near my boyfriend, and then figure out from there where I was going to go. You
1: guys all know what Rush Management was and is?
2: So Rush Management at the time, um, we were LL Cool J, public enemy, Run DMC, Tribe Cold Quest, Leaders of the New School, Brand Nubian, Positive K, Double um, X Posse. We were everybody in um, hip-hop music, and um, it was awesome. And, um, and you're
1: a poli-sci major. And, and an you're, English major. And you're, and you're applying there for a job for the summer.
2: Yeah, and, and Lear said to me, you know, why should I hire you? And I said, because I'm really smart. I've got an unbelievable work ethic. I worked in my parents' drugstores my whole life growing up. There wasn't anything I didn't do. And, um, and I could type 50 words per minute. And um, his office didn't really have a setup for me, so I literally sat on the edge of a couch with a, with a shelf, and that was my chair, and my computer was there. And at one point, he comes up behind me, because he sat right there, and he sees me doing this. And he was like, and Lior has a crazy Israeli accent, and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm I'm working on an itinerary for one of the artists. And he says, you lied to me. And I'm like, what do you mean I lied to you? What did I lie to you about? And and, and then all of a sudden he's like, you don't know how to type. (laughs) But by then we were like two months in and we had gelled and I was really smart and I had a great work ethic. And so, you know, two out of three wasn't so bad. And so he kept me.
1: And this is 1992. This
2: is 1992. Yeah, I started July 6, 1992.
1: And then a couple of months into the job.
2: He said, "Um, I really um, need to focus on Def Jam full time because Def Jam was in a really rough place. Um, They hadn't had any hot acts in a while. And he was like, I'm really uh, afraid that it's not going in the direction it needs to survive and the logo's too important. And he said, I'm going to. shut down the management company, um, everything but Run DMC. And um, because at that time, we had Chris Leidy as a partner, God rest his soul. And he said, I'm going to just give Chris his axe. And I'm going to focus on Def Jam. And he said, I would like you to go um, into the promotions department and learn another side of my business. And um, he made me the promotions coordinator. And um, at that time, we were going through Columbia um, Sony Music. And um, we didn't have a marketing department. And our urban promotions department was the most chaotic uh, place. The the person sitting over here didn't talk to this person over here who didn't talk to this person. And um, so we would literally send an artist to DC to do BET and not tell the radio guy that we were going to DC. And I was so confused because I just came from the management side where we did these beautiful itineraries. And Leroy always was making sure these dots were all being connected, and I'd be like, "So, we're bringing EPMD down to D. C. to do BT Summit on a Saturday, but we're not doing anything with radio or going to Howard University to do something on the college campus." And they were like, "Listen, if you want to do it, you put it together." So I started to organize itineraries, and um, I programmed the fax machine, and um, so with one button, I could hit every urban radio station. And um, within like a year, I was promoted to GM of the department because they all thought I was some kind of brain surgeon.
1: But it was your work ethic and your, you you worked crazy hours back then.
2: You know, I was 22 and going on 23. And what else was I going to do? I was learning this whole new culture in this new thing called the music business. And um, it was so crazy because I would go home and um, I told my parents I got this job at <laughs> Def Jam Records. and. They were like, what's a Def Jam Records? And, and I was like, it's all these rappers. And, and my parents, I think they cried. Um, <laughs> and um, the craziest part was is back then they had these numerical pagers where only a number would come up right. and, um, because I had to be on 24-hour call. And um, I go home, and it beeps, and I look at it, and I have to call Leor. And my father says to me, you know, Julie, there's only two types of people that carry pages, doctors and drug dealers. I didn't send you to medical school. <laughs> and I was like, Dad, I promise you, it's part of this whole business. Like, you have to be 24 hours a day, seven days a week, accessible. No, You don't have a personal life. And um, I didn't have a personal life. My 20s, especially my early 20s,
1: all I did was work. But the boyfriend, you came down to, you wanted to be in New York to be near him.
2: Oh, I ended up kicking him to the curb because all I did was work. Wow. And I also just immersed myself so much into going to the tunnel, going to the Palladium, going to places that were all hip-hop nights and learning everything I could about just rap music and this whole other culture that I, I had no understanding of. And the only way you could really promote it and um, work in it was to really learn from the inside out. And going to college radio and seeing Bobito in action, and how to work a DJ, and going to a club and watching him work a DJ at a club, which is different than going to a college radio station and working the college DJ. And how you convince somebody why they should play our music. Because you know, that, that Def Jam logo was cold when I got there. You know, and our job was you know, to bring it back and to make it hot again.
1: And then um, Def Jam was distributed then by Sony Columbia. Uh-huh. And then wasn't there time It was it, you moved over?
2: So what happened was is Lior sold, got Polygram to buy um, the 50% back from Sony. And um, when he left Sony, we lost our marketing department. And um, we just signed this new kid called um, Warren G from the West Coast. And uh, he said, you know, I need someone to start my marketing department. And I was like, well, why don't we hire the guy from Columbia who used to work for us? And he was like, I don't want, I don't want any of them. I don't like the way they, they handled us. And I was like, well, who are we gonna hire? And he was like, you're gonna do it. And I was like, I don't know anything about marketing. Like, at that point, I was like, the promo, I was working urban radio, I was working DJs. I was like, I do promotion. I don't know anything about marketing. And uh, he said, you know, go, um, go to the West Coast, go meet Warren G and go figure this thing out. Oh, and we were also an East Coast label, too. And I was like, the first project you're putting me onto market is a West Coast rapper? I mean, I was so, you know, and I was so defensive of East Coast rap, too, because I just came off of Onyx and um, EPMD and Redman. And uh, he was just like, listen, go learn. And he literally bought me like a one-way plane ticket and shipped me to um, LA. And um, the only thing I had read about and learned about from reading The Source magazine was the Sloss and Swap meet. So I I rented a car and drove myself to the Slauson swap meet. And um, surrounding the Slauson swap meet were all these um, buildings with these old billboards. You know, everything was these big eight sheets. And I took the number and I I called the woman and I said, "Um, hi, I'm really interested in in buying billboards from your company. And and I gave her the address of all these streets that I wrote down surrounding. And she said to me, honey, you don't want to, buy there like no one buys there that's our remnant space like uh, let me sell you on like sunset you know and um, I said no 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 I need this and she like literally for like ten thousand dollars sold me like a million billboards well Warren G called up Leor and was like cuz you must be spending a million dollars on me like little do you know it was like you know remnant space but if I didn't go out there and actually drive around and like figure out like where are my people of who I have to actually sell the records to I don't know if I I couldn't have done it from New York it was the most valuable um, lesson I learned which was who's the demo and how do I get to them and what's the most efficient way to get to the demo and it really taught me that um, you know gotta have a lot of different plays in my playbook that every artist is going to be different and that I gotta figure out who they are and identify who's the first ones in and spend all my money getting to the first ones in
1: so back to when you were in tulane mm-hmm. you obviously were not in into the hip-hop music or rap music not at all so like what were some of the what was some of the music we if you had an ipod back then or what was oh the my god I, I must
2: have burned out um 10, maniacs in my tribe i listened to depeche mode Um, I listened to a lot of different just alternative um, music, Echo and the Bunnymen. Um, I did do concert committee, um, you know, just because the guy I was dating was doing concert committee. So I said, okay, I'll do concert committee too. So um, there was was a little music in my um, college career, you know. I took Simply Red down to um, Pat O'Brien's and got them Hurricanes after their concert.
1: (laughs) So this is what, uh, this is probably late 90s?
2: Late 90s, I, no, middle 90s, I was um, doing marketing, and I was doing, um, Lior said to me, you're doing such a good job on marketing. He said, I'd like you to take over the art department. I said, I don't know shit about doing art. And he said, figure it out. And then he said, listen, you're doing such a good job running the art department. I'd like you to now run the video department. I said, I don't know shit about the video department. I, I, I wouldn't know a key grip from a lighting guy. Like, and, uh, and he said, go figure it out. And... Um, by the time I was like 26, I was running Def Jam. Like there was no department that you know he hadn't handed me to say, "Hey," um, and it was because he trusted me so much. Um, he knew that that company was my company, and that um, I watched every dollar, and that everything I did was for the artists and what was good for that logo. And that was my most important job. Was I was the keeper of that logo. And I used to have to figure out, like, does this artwork hold up? Is it make the logo hot, or does it put whack juice on the logo? And literally, that's I would shelf a video if I thought it would hurt the logo.
1: Yeah, well, there's a famous story. Um, uh, you you commissioned a video. Yeah. That never got.
2: There, I, I, there's a few famous. Well, I I commissioned the. Uh, Uh, LL video that we ended up shelving, that was a few hundred Gs, and then the Cisco video, um, the the one where he fought with the dragon. Well, the dragon won, because I didn't put the video out. It cost us a million dollars.
1: A million dollars for one video?
2: Yeah, that's when we were selling a lot of
1: records. Right, well that's when videos, a quarter of a million dollars for video was pretty standard, if I recall.
2: That was pretty standard, and you could break an artist off of MTV, so the investment was well worth it. If you got your video on MTV, MTV could break in any artist they got behind back in the day. Right. And we weren't necessarily getting on MTV. So when we finally got on MTV, whew, made they all get, the difference. They
1: ghettoized a lot of the stuff to you know, MTV Raps.
2: Initially, yeah, yeah. And that was only the clean stuff. Right. Oh, part of my job oh, too yeah. was went with Onyx, because they were throwing the guns in the air. We had this thing called The Box, which was like a local video channel in every city and you could call and request your own videos. So I would leave Def Jam, I would go home, and then I would literally sit there with two phones, with two lines, and call the box and request our own videos.
1: In the New York area or around the country?
2: At first I was doing New York, and then I figured out I got from Les Garland the list of all the videos, and then I would do it by how we were helping out where songs were getting played in other markets, like how to tackle DC and Philly you know and work our records that 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 way that
1: was expression was called jacking the box
2: totally and then it finally hit me what kind of schmageg am i doing this why don't i just hire some interns to do it and have them jack the box as opposed to me spending my nights dialing for dollars
1: and there were a lot of companies that could hire back then a lot of people started companies to jack the box yeah Which was you know because what was it it was a dollar a request i
2: think no it was more than that it was like a buck like 39
1: right and then and then they put a premium on top of that for doing that for you so People were very entrepreneurial and said, "Okay, you can hire me, and you'll give me a list of what videos you want me to play and target what areas." What markets? Uh huh. So that was a great way to market stuff and start when videos really had an impact totally. b- before YouTube. Totally. So why? What made you decide to shelve those videos? I mean, what they were so detrimental to the artist, they would have.
2: They were laughable. The the Cisco one was horrific. He he fought a dragon and like 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 you know it's just. And you knew going in it was the worst concept, but this, this, you know, this is the problem, right? Um, After Kevin Costner made Dancing with Wolves, he made Waterworld. After Cisco got done making the Thong Song, selling six million albums just in the United States and like you know, God knows how many around the globe, you can't tell somebody that that thing is the worst thing ever because he says I made the Thong Song, and everybody thought that was going to be crazy and retarded. So you know. L.L. always had up and downs where Mr. Smith was selling this. And then it was always, you know, which happens to a lot of artists that they sell a lot. And then the next one, there's no telling them because they just came off of such a huge
1: success. And then the marketing of of rap music, at least initially, was very different than the marketing of of rock music. Because there was always, I remember Lior talking about, you know, it's like an opening of a movie, like the first week for a hip-hop artist is, is like so crucial, because if you don't get that huge, expanded opening... You know. Well,
2: you know, this was the thing, hip-hop music is so based on, back then, especially it was so based on bravado right. and boasting. You were the king of your city. You know, we always said you had to get your backyard and you had to be the biggest and the best, and it was all based on talking good shit, right. like, I'm the boss, I'm the biggest. And so, movies, the biggest box office, if you were the biggest, you're going to show everybody come Tuesday that you got the most fans. And we put so much pressure on the first week right. number. I think we're responsible for causing that, that shenanigans of just putting so much pressure on an opening week. Because then we would show the world. Because remember, we're still convincing the world that rap music was mainstream music. And we were still, I mean, you, you don't understand. I showed up with a guy named Jay-Z and MTV fought me for God knows how many years To make him a big act, getting him on the Music Awards was very challenging. They didn't just say, "Oh yeah, he's Jay Z. Put him on." Like the first year I booked him on the show, they made me do it as a combo performance with DMX. It just so happened that DMX didn't show up, so he got his own slot. But you know, (laughs) but you know, they didn't look at Jay Z like Eminem. Right. And we were always so mad because we were like, our guy matters more. And they're like, no, this guy's Elvis.
1: You guys always felt like you were the second class citizen. We were the second class citizens. Everybody was, everybody was getting the benefit of the doubt except the Def Jam artists. You guys had to work extra hard to prove the value of the repertoire.
2: They kept, we had the song um, Method Man featuring Mary J. Blige, You're All I Need, which the New York Times Magazine, I'll never forget, called it the, lo- the, so- the love song of the summer. We got all this critical praise for the song and um, MTV wouldn't play the video. They said it was too dark. The song was so big. We even got Puffy to do a remix to try to make it more f- friendly and less scary for them, and um, and they still wouldn't um, they wouldn't play it.
1: And then their standards and practices drove you crazy, because there were things that they didn't tell you, and then you deliver a video and they say, "Julie, we can't show this video because X, Y, and Z." Yeah. Yes. So you was you'd always have to go back and. There always, it was always a, seemed to be a double standard for what was yeah. acceptable and not.
2: I mean, I, I tried to convince them that this little guy named DMX was a really big star, and we had this song called Get At Me, Dog. And, um, but They obviously didn't want to play it, and um, they wanted us to change his lyrics. <laughs> so they said, we'll play it if you change his lyrics. So I go to the studio, and... Um, He's, they said he's gonna get there around like 1, 2 in the morning. So I said, Cool, I'll get there or whatever. So I show up at 2 in the morning to see him. And I said, X-Man, MTV, I think I can really get them on you, but, but you're gonna to need to change your lyrics. And he said, What? And I said, I, I need you to change your lyrics, and, and I'm gonna be able to get you on MTV, and it's gonna help you become really big. And we know you're big in the streets, but we, we want everybody to come to the party. And he looks me in the face and he says, Real dog sniff blood. All right. What? (laughs) It's a real dog sniff blood. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what is this guy talking about, right? And it hits me that his fans will get to him, he doesn't need to change his lyrics, and that we have to just stay our course. And that, you know what, it's not going to get on MTV, but that the real fans of hip hop and his, you know, Dark Man X's poetry are going to get to him and he's not changing his lyrics for anybody. So the next day I come to work and Lear calls me in his office and he says, did you get DMX to flip his lyrics? And I go, real dog sniff blood. And Lear was like, what? And um, I'll tell you, um, we released that album probably in, like, let's say April. Um, we sold a lot of records off that first album. Lear also came up with the crazy notion that he was so hot and on fire, let's drop another album in December. No one ever put out an album in December. Everybody at physical retail said to us, you can't put out an album in December. We said, why not? It's the best time to put an album. Kids are going to have uh, Christmas money. It's going to be a stocking stuffer. No, retail won't rack your record. He says, watch this. And, um, and he said, and because it's only coming out on the third week of December, I don't have to pay that much co-op. Because right. they used to stick us up and make us pay bazillions of dollars to put we used to have to pay retail, bazillions of dollars for the privilege of us putting the records in their record store for them to sell it. Right. It, was, it, was, it was such a criminal activity of what used to happen back in the day. Um, and this way he figured no cop. And literally, my marketing plan for DMX was we had this fire single called What's My Name. Um, we dropped the video a week or two weeks in front, went to radio, and I literally spent 100 Gs on BET and 100 Gs on MTV, and we sold like 860 something thousand albums first week. Yep. yep. $200,000 plus a video and radio. That was it. It was the good old days, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> really.
1: Really. So, you're, so you guys are now at Polygram, which doesn't exist anymore. Now it was absorbed by Universal, mm-hmm. but back then it was a standalone. Yep. And things are going along. You guys are putting out records.
2: Oh, we were killing it. When Universal acquired um, Polygram, we were making more money than Island, A&M, everybody, Mercury, and the Universal family, and we had 14 artists on the roster.
1: And, how, and, a, and a, a smidgen of employees compared to those labels.
2: We had um, 60 employees. And then the reason why Sorry, is because- say that again, how many? 60. And it was because every one of our artists was gold, platinum, or multi-platinum. If you, if you walked into Def Jam and you were only gold, man, you, people would make so much fun of you and slick talk about you. Like, and Leroy and was brilliant because he set it up like Gladiator. You know, Jay wanted to kill X, X wanted to kill Ja, Ludacris, Ja wanted to kill Ludacris. So they were all fighting. So every year, every November, like clockwork, they would all drop new albums because they all wanted to be King Kong. It was brilliant. We ended up not having to break any new acts because every year, the biggest of the big were coming back and just selling so many records. Um, it was beautiful.
1: So then, then, what, then what occurred as far as, so the company was sold and you In
2: 1999, um, we sold it and um, Lior said to me... Um, i not
1: getting personal, but when you use the pronoun we. So Lior said, I mean, you were loyal to him, he was loyal to you.
2: So, I mean, listen, I was very, very lucky. When I was 23, Lior said to me, listen, you are a little superstar. I never want you to leave me. People are gonna start to figure out who you are. And you're gonna get phone calls. And I don't want you to ever think about leaving me. So, if you stay with me, I promise you, this little company called Def is gonna be worth a lot of money, I'm gonna make you a, you're gonna become an owner. I'm gonna give you a piece of my company. And um, I didn't know about anything, so I was like, okay. Whatever. Okay, and this is how retarded I was. I didn't even ask for a piece of paper, because I didn't even know that these things called contracts existed. First of all, we didn't even have business cards. We didn't even have, compu- we didn't even have credit cards when I first started. I mean, it was cash, and then you got reimbursed back for cash. Um, and um, he gave me a piece of his company. And um, it was smart on his behalf, because I never questioned my salary or getting big, fat raises. And you know, the first time Puffy called me and said, baby girl, you should come over here and work with me. I was like, I I, I can't. Like, you know, this is my company. And um, it really kept my head down, because also, now I'm working really harder and harder, and I'm driving a multiple. And it was a genius plot, because he literally locked me up and put the battery on my back that if I out-hustled everybody and helped him build this business, um, he took the lion's share, but I still, yeah. you know. So, yeah, but it was, a, it was a sad day because we were on such a high. I, and he said, you know, Lear, Russell wants to sell, but we were on fire. And I was like, I don't understand. Like, there was so much to still do. But he wanted access to running a pop and rock department. He wanted Top 40 Radio. He hated the fact that we had to go through Island, Mercury, and beg right. to get our records on other formats. And that's when he said... So they
1: were distributed by a major ent- entity... Through a secondary label, so whether it was Mercury or island or uh, whoever, they, they had to wait for a priority. so if there were other records in the way, they had a fight to to jump over that, and it, it used to drive them crazy because they knew they had the hot goods and and with hip hop it 's a very perishable thing. a rock record might stick around a little bit longer, but but a hip hop record is very perishable, and you need it now, you need it now, and you can 't wait and so you 're like like at an airport, you're in runway and you're waiting to take off, and these other guys are getting in front of you, and it would drive the Def Jam folks crazy because uh-huh. they want to be there now, they have to be there now, and they can't wait, and so they would go from Island. They went to went, I think you guys went to Mercury for a while. Mm-hmm. It was just so I guess he finally decided, let's try something different, mm-hmm. and, he, and he sold the rest of the company.
2: He sold the other half, and um, and we took Island Def Jam and Mercury and pushed them together. And he became the president of that. And um, he asked me to take over the white side and run the rock side so of you were like, marketing. So you were president
1: of Island, right?
2: Yeah. And, um, and he said, you know, I'd like you to take over the rock side. And I was like, white people? I don't know about white people. <laughs> Why? I was the queen of hip-hop. I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, I was on fire. And uh, I was like, man. And... Uh, and also just the whole thought of, like, going on the warp Tour. Like, I was like, ew. You know, like, because I went to, when the, this guy started dating, you know, he started taking me to these little, like, dirty rock clubs. And I was like, this isn't sexy, you know? And, uh, but, um, but he, Leora said, listen, this is really important for your growth. You have to grow. And we need, um, he needed to grow, and he wanted me to grow. And he said, it, it's time. You've done this long enough, you're great at the urban side, you now need a new challenge in life. And, um, and you know, we said, let's do it. And um, I took all the principles that I learned from Def Jam about marketing on the streets and street teams and going around radio. And we were the first label actually to have a website. Def Jam was the first label to have a website. Amazing. Um, Amazing. And um, took the stuff we started learning from, from these nerds that we had hired. and. Um, started to apply it to the Island side. And um, it was really just, you know, it was really amazing because here I was at like 20, you know, eight years old and um, I was like, wow, a whole new business for
1: me. And he did make you president, right? Yeah. So in, in just to go back to the major theme here. So Julia 28th president of Island Records. Um, I believe there's only two other female executives um, Who have achieved that? I mean, Florence Greenberg back in the '60s at Scepter Records. Um,
2: well, when I came in, when I when I finally became president, Polly Anthony was president right. of Epic,
1: and and, and, uh, and Sylvia probably
2: Sylvia was somewhere. She was Electra, and yeah. Michelle was at Sony.
1: But she wasn't president. She,
2: she was, was business affairs. She was some, She no, she was a big dog. Her yeah. and Tom Tommy were big dogs at Sony. So there were a few. um,
1: But she's amongst, it's a very small handful. I mean, um, right or wrong, probably wrong. It's a very male-dominated industry, and. and, It's still
2: a very male-dominated industry.
1: And Julie is. Hasn't changed much. No, that's true. That's true.
2: You know, when you, you, you look at the power list, like they do the women in music list, and you go, wow, look at all these amazing women. And then when you get to the power list, you go, oh. Where are all the amazing women?
1: Well, one of them's here tonight. Oh, we're thank very, you. We're, we're really lucky. Thank you. So you're an Island. And I guess, one of, I guess one of the earliest ones you, you, you applied some of your hip hop was uh, that Canadian band, Sum 41.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we had Sum 41. We well, yeah, listen. We were very lucky because Def Jam, again, was kicking off so much money. Lior said, listen, we're going to just slow the whole company down and literally stop uh, the Island side. Um, and we said, listen, let Def Jam really pay. And let's focus on a handful of artists, and let's break them. And we signed um, Sum 41, American Hi-Fi, and Saliva, and we really put all of our resources into those three bands to break those three artists. Which then got us Hoobastank, which then you know brought us you know Fall Out Boy, which then brought us the Killers. Like it was like he was really smart about really small, really focused, same kind of thing of what we did at Def Jam. That less is more and that if we just focus and stay in it, we could develop and break um, some artists on the pop and rock side until we got Mariah Carey came over to us. Um, we were able, Bon Jovi, we brought them back. We had this song called It's My Life. No one he wanted
1: was he was No one was wanted
2: cr- to mess with Bon Jovi. They weren't selling tickets. They were big in Europe. And we had this gorgeous, amazing song that took us like nine months to get that song. We, we tortured our head of promo, Ken Lane. I mean, every day for nine months, we talked about one song, and we wouldn't let him off the hook. And then we got it, yep. and then the next thing you know, they're selling out Giant Stadium again. It, yep. was, it was the wildest ride. And then they became massive again in Europe, and then it haloed their whole comeback. But it was literally just the com- to stay in one song, you don't get that luxury, but we did because we weren't putting out a ton of records on the pop and rock side. And also Def Jam, we also got Ashanti, who ended up selling a lot of records, like so. It was just, it was a great, it was a great experience. It taught me a lot, and which, when I went over to um, start Atlantic and put Atlantic and Electra together, I, I stole all of Lira's plays. I, I stopped the whole company. We're gonna focus on one project right now. It's Rob Thomas, and then it was from there James Blunt, and it was the same premise, which is we're gonna do. We're gonna do more with less, and we're gonna just focus, and we're gonna to have to have the best batting average in the league because we're not gonna put out a lot of records, and that's the only way we're gonna survive.
1: So you um, were running Island for, well, I guess two years maybe it was, and then it was a few years, and then and then Leor got an, another opportunity. hmm And he was wooed away by one
2: of. One music group.
1: Right, and um, I guess he.
2: He wanted, at that point, he was so excited because Island Def Jam was the number one label in the country. And he was like, there's no place else to go. We did it. We showed everybody we're just not hip hop people. We could do pop and rock music. And um, he wanted the big job. He wanted to run a music company, a music group. And um, so I'm in the life is too short category. I said, it's all about the people I work with. And um, sad as it was to leave all my artists, I, you know, left and went with um, Leor, and um,
1: so he took the corporate job.
2: He took the big corporate job, and me, like a shmegegi again. I didn't read the paper, um, and I didn't look at who was on the roster. I just followed, and all of a sudden, I get there and I say, "Hey, so who's on Elektra and who's on Atlantic?" And it turns out that over the last ten years, both of those labels had a very challenging time, and. They had Missy Elliott left. Um, She was there. They had Kid Rock. They had Matchbox 20. They had Stained. Um, It was barren. So um, I tell this to everybody. Necessity is a mother. We literally had to break acts because we didn't have them.
1: There was no urban, really, was there?
2: No, there was no urban. When I got there, we had signed um, T.I. and Trey songs. They had Trick Daddy and Trina when I got there. So um, it was really, uh, we had a lot of work to
1: do. So you you know, that's a legacy company. I mean, Amit was still, if I'm not mistaken, Amit was still, still there. alive. Mm-hmm. And he's chairman, you know, above all else. And here you are coming in. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did the chemistry work there? Because he's, if anything, he old was, school at the time.
2: He was, let me tell you, he was so hopeful because he was like, all he wanted was to see his company return to health, and um, he was really supportive and um, literally would, I remember, I said, listen, there's this young guy, Trey Songs, and I went into his office, I played him the music, and I said, he makes great R&B music, and literally, I got him to write on his letterhead a letter to every different urban program director saying, I know R&B music. I'm the guy that brought you Ray Charles and, you know, Aretha and Ruth Brown, this guy has real, you know, rhythm and blues in his body. Um, oh, I used him. I mean, I made him call Barbara Walters when we were trying to break James Blunt. I, I Amit's rolodex was insane, of and um, he loved music. And um, probably loved the fact somebody was asking him to help. Yes, I remember Narles Barkley. Um, he, the guy, used to walk with a cane. He literally went all the way up the steps. Um, to see Norles Barkley the first time they performed at Webster Hall for us, in the VIP section, um, he came out because he was like this. He was so excited that we had cool, exciting stuff. He literally would come to, he would come to every show, and then after show party hang. I'd be like, all right, I'm going home now because I got to go to work tomorrow, and he's like, you're not going out. Right. And I'd be like, it's one in the morning, and right. like,
1: he's nocturnal,
2: 80 years old, and he was going strong, you know. Yeah.
1: So in 2004, they made you president of Atlantic Records, and Mm -hmm. then five years later, they gave you another title, right? A chair, chairperson, chairwoman, COO.
2: You know, I I really don't know the dates of when everything happened, but it was it was. It was a few years later. Yeah, yeah.
1: And then, so let's talk about your secret sauce. You're. You're going into a brand new. Company mm-hmm. and there's a corporate culture there, albeit they don't have a lot of hits. And there was a horrible culture there. So Both
2: sides were horrible. I ran around the building and I said to everybody, "Listen, I didn't come here to be Atlantic and I didn't come here to be Electra. I'm coming here to start the new company." And um, I was also uh, eight months pregnant when I showed up. Cool. And um, and literally, I had to meet with I don't know each company had hundreds of people. And we had to downsize and go to a 200% sized company. So I literally had to run around and meet hundreds and hundreds of employees and decide who we wanted to stay and who I had to unfortunately let go of. And a lot of it was all based on just my gut of who wants to be down from the new culture, who looks at the past and says, that sucked. and you know, And the ones that were like, it's great, I was like, "Oh my God, I can't have you here, because if you can't recognize the problem, I don't know how we're going to fix it." And so um, that was really my barometer was who was signing up to like tear down um, just the bad practices and bad habits of flinging records to radio and signing too much and not doing artist development and not building anything. And um, I was like, "No, man, that's not how it's going to get down." And um, you know. And so I quickly hired a bunch of people, fired a bunch of people. I moved my C-section date back, um, got as much done as possible. And then uh, I gave birth, and uh, I took a few weeks off. And um, Lira called me, and he was like, when are you coming back? And I literally cried on the phone, because I was like, I just had a baby. And uh, he was just like, yeah, but we need you. You got to get back here. And I thought for this was my second child, and I thought I learned something from my first child, which was I should really take a maternity leave what kind of, I, I I messed up on my first child where he kind of took away my maternity leave, and so I, I vowed i wouldn 't let him do it twice, and sure enough, he got me back and um, and it was it was a lot of heavy lifting and um, but this was the thing I was in every meeting, i 'm still sitting in every marketing meeting today because I was like i 'm gonna have to teach people the new way and the only way to teach is to actually be in there, be vulnerable with creative marketing ideas and lead and and let people know that like there's different ways to do it and say, no, we're going to do it this way and we're going to take our time and do a lot of touring and a lot of street teaming and a lot of digital marketing and a lot of content and, you know, we came up with this idea of, we called it buckets we didn't know how to name content. We didn't know how, and we had this whole thing where we spent all this money creating buckets of content. And and who knew, you know, this was before YouTube.
1: Right.
2: We were just making it for our websites. We were definitely a content creating company before YouTube happened. So when YouTube did happen, we already were ready.
1: you You had the content to share. We had
2: content to share and we were also set up with a video and content department that was already teaching people because handheld cameras, the price had come down so cheaply that literally when we would sign an act, they would get like a care package of, you know, we'd give them, uh, what do you call it, we'd give them an iPod, we'd give them a, you know, a handheld video camera. We'd give them so much stuff as like our starter kit to like just get them on the road um, and start teaching them from really early... Way before um, YouTube, we were already like going, you know.
1: So as a sidebar here, um, so you mentioned when you moved to New York, it was for a boyfriend, and then you got so immersed in work, you pushed him to this side. Yeah. So now you have two kids, yeah. somehow you found time to date and find the right guy to get married. <laughs> you know, people yes. wonder, how do you balance, I mean, you're, you're a very successful, aggressive manager and get stuff done at the end of the day, but then there's this other side of you. You're a parent and you're a wife. Yes. Uh, I mean, how does that work? I mean, I'm sure a lot of people here are like going, well, how can you have it all? Be married, have kids, and a successful career.
2: And I got a new dog.
1: <laughs> okay. So
2: at any time at 6.30 in the morning, you could see me downtown walking a dog in Tribeca. Or when I get home tonight, I'll do the, uh, the late night shift. of uh, I have a little Pomeranian that I just got.
1: And I um, bet you, I bet you, I'll bet you moved at least once or twice since coming to New York.
2: I've moved, and um, I actually just bought a home in um, Brooklyn. I'm gonna thank you. I'm gonna move to Brooklyn in a few years after I renovate this sucker. But um, first of all, this is the thing. There's no such thing as balance. I've thrown that concept out the window. I do the best job that I could do for me and my family, and um, and that's all I can do. And you know, but you I, still have that
1: pager. Even, the, I mean, built in ment- mentally that, like, it's 24-7, and, and it, if somebody needs you...
2: So, this is the thing. I It's taken me a really long time to um, figure out that the uh, important stuff is when, first of all, when I'm in a meeting, I am BlackBerry-free. I cannot stand it when I'm running a meeting and people are on a BlackBerry, so... I, when I'm running meetings, and I sit in a lot of meetings, I am not on a Blackberry. I have learned how to put that sucker to the side and get to the emails and messages when I need to get to them. Um, because there's nothing worse than when you're sitting there talking to someone and they're on their device. So I don't want to do that to anybody, So um, especially my children and my husband. So when I'm home and I'm doing, I do Shabbat dinner every week with them
1: um that that's uh friday night sabbath dinners
2: i come home every friday night and always do shabbat dinner and um that thing goes to the side and i check it at nine o'clock at night to see like did the world blow up am i okay is there anything i need to deal with and at six thirty, as i'm going home i'm on a call i'm dealing with something i say hey can i you know can we deal with this tomorrow can we deal with this sunday like And I push it off unless it's really, really urgent because somebody is in such a funky or bad place that I have to deal with it. But, you know, and everybody's understanding. And everybody says, sure, let's deal with it on Monday or let's deal with it this weekend at a better time. And I say, you know, I just got home. I need to see my kids. You know, when you say, when you use the kids' words, even artists back off you and say, oh, wait, call me back. Unless, like, they're in jail and I got to get them out, you know. which we're a full-service company, we will get you out. Um, uh, but, you know, everybody's very understanding, and, and it's all about your own... You know, I don't have to prove anything to anyone anymore. I'm not, right. I'm not on the climb. Right. Now, I am, I, I, I'm like the tree of wisdom. That's how I think of myself now. My job is to kick wisdom to the youngins. My job is to be a great bouncing board and to also be a great... Um, coach and mentor and my job is to also just avoid the potholes and have a different point of view because I can see things from being in it in the marketing meetings but I also have so much experience of um, being able to look at a project from you know 30,000 feet up as well because I'm looking at a P&L, and I'm looking at it from a financial or from a global perspective of how it's gonna impact the company or the corporation, not just what it's gonna do for the artist or for our own um, label. And so um, I'm at a different point in my life, and so I can um, go home between the show and quickly go give everyone a hug because the show's at the Bowery Ballroom and I live downtown, and then run back out the door because if the artist isn't going on at 10 o'clock at night, I don't necessarily need to um, go. I can dip in and dip out.
1: So, what's more difficult, managing staffs or managing artists' careers?
2: I mean, it's 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 much harder managing an artist's career. You know, artists are the most interesting people on the planet. That's what makes them artists. And um, there are artists that get it's a business and understand that it's also a job. And unfortunately, there's a lot of things they have to do. To have great success and then there's a lot of artists that just want to be in the studio and create the music and don't want to do the 90 million other things it takes to really you know move music and sell music and you know have fans and stay engaged with fans and um, you know you find yourself so many times wanting it more than they do and it's heartbreaking because you're just like, you're so talented and the world should hear you and see you, but it's a lot of work. America's so big. To really do America right, you have to tour it and tour it and tour it. Um, and you gotta get out of the 12 major markets and you gotta go visit all the secondaries and tertiaries. And, um, and then God willing, you conquer America, the globe is even bigger. Right. And it just takes a lot of wear and tear on the body and then while you're doing that, you know, not only are you touring, we're asking you to talk to a million different people, you know, there's so many more people to talk to now. You know, it used to just be one radio jock. It's fragmented. It's so, there's so many millions of, of uh, you know, online people that want you, bloggers we need you to talk to, fanzines we need you to talk to, magazines, newspapers, college papers.
1: Everybody wants.
2: Everybody wants to interview you and um, we don't know how we're going to catch the demo is all so over the place now because the internet has music everywhere um, that um, we need you to talk to a lot of people. And we also need you to do your socials all the time. Right. Because fans, they want it. They want to be fed constantly. Yep. And so um, it's, it's, listen, Jay Z doesn't do half this shit because he didn't have, he, social media wasn't around. So he's like, fuck it, I'm not doing it. Right. Right? Yep. He doesn't have to. But the youngins, you they know, Ed to. Sheeran is on his grind. That guy works every day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. He does not take a day off, because he stays engaged with his fans. It's a lot of work. And he's touring the globe. And literally, he gets off the plane from China, and he has a message from me saying, I need you, 911, call me. And he's like, I just landed in China. And I'm like, listen, we're going for a number one record. You, you need to right now, he's like, I need to go through customs. I'm like, no, 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 no. I need to connect you right now with Kid Craddock Radio Station because you need these spins. You have to get on a syndicated radio. And he's like, I think I'm going to get arrested. I'm like, it's going to be worth it. We're going to get you the number one record. Just stay on the phone. That's and great. he got the number one record.
1: And, and deservedly so.
2: And But it's that kind of commitment yep. that separates the pact of just, it's so hard to break these days. To really break and break big, you got to work your tail off, man.
1: Yep. I, I want to di- divert a second away from the label thing and, and talk to you about the male-female thing. It's a, As we talked about, it's a very male-dominated. And you had a very have and continue to have, I suppose, a great relationship with Lior, which mm-hmm. is almost, I mean, I witnessed some of your dialogue, and you guys are almost like brother and sister. I yeah. mean, and you, you say stuff that, you know, the HR department would cringe. Yes. If they overheard. And, you know, and that's between you, mean you two.
2: You yourself isn't in the handbook? <laughs> yeah.
1: No, I've heard, I actually heard him call you worse than that. <laughs> I had to leave the office because I was so uh, uncomfortable. But, <laughs> but, it, but, it doesn't, but it doesn't matter because that's the way you two guys communicate and, yeah. and there's love there at the end of the day. Yes. But I just wonder the encounters you have along the way with managers, artists, agents, or just coworkers mm-hmm. or anybody you know treating you differently as, as a woman. I mean, because there aren't a lot of powerful women executives. So do you run into that male-dominated, chauvinistic thing ever? So um, it,
2: it was always my advantage at Def Jam because I could have every hard conversation with every artist and no one would swing on me. So I was the one that got sent in to deliver the bad news that we're losing the record or that, like, you know, the record was a stiff. Um, and, um, or if we needed an artist to do something, um, I had, I was able to, like, rub their shoulders a little bit more And get artists to move. And I always used to say one of the reasons why um, I got promoted and got to where I did was because I can move talent. I could get J. I would go see X. I'd go. I I had great relationships with all the artists, and they trusted me because I put in the time. And so so I had a great relationship. Well that was an
1: advantage as a woman.
2: As a woman, it was like I I wasn't a competitor. Um, I wasn't you know jockeying them to be their friend. I was their, you know, they saw I was their servant. Like, I was there to get the job done, and I was their advocate. And then as I I grew up and grew up and had power, they saw I used it all for the right reasons. I would go fight with MTV on their behalf, and and they knew it. I would go fight with BET to get on the award show. And um, they loved, you know, that I was, you know, I was a woman, and they liked the fact that, like, you know, they could, we could have sweet talk and be nice to each other, but they also saw that I was really fierce and that I used my, um, my power for good. So I never thought of it ever as being a disadvantage. I think the reason why I stood out like a sore thumb is because I was a woman and, um, in a field in hip hop music when there really weren't any. And, um, you know, even to this day, it's like I go into the Warner Music Group boardroom and um, there's no women. And I'm surrounded by a sea of men. And um, you know, I smile and, you know, I do my shtick and I stand out like a sore thumb, which I think I make the best impression because I'm not a suit, I'm not a dude, I'm not one of many. To use Pharrell's word, I am other. You know? And so I, I loved it. I, I always relish the fact that um I was a woman. And then I employ a lot of women. I have a lot of women that work for me. Yeah, you do. Um, a lot of women. And a lot of women in very powerful positions in my company. Um, because, listen, we offer a different perspective. The demographic, the, the biggest demographic of people that buy music are women. Women buy, buy more records than, than men do.
1: Okay. Um,
2: so we're the demo.
1: Okay. So-
2: Unless you're a Rush fan.
1: Yeah, I've, I've just learned that recently. Some very peculiar, Rush fans, mm-hmm. hardcore. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody here is a student, an academic. Some, some are at a community college. Some are at a four-year college. Mm-hmm. You went to Tulane you know, four years. Yeah. Talk about, from your perspective, what the college degree, because I always have people come up to me every so often during a semester and go, so if I do well in this class, am I going to get a job? Now. You didn't have a deg- you didn't go for a degree in music business no. music education or I mean, poli science English right? Mm-hmm. So, how how do you feel that the college education helped you get where you are today?
2: I mean, I think what it did was it, it, from for me personally it just helped me grow up, you know, in in terms of just um, having that time to go from being eighteen to twenty one and and. Um, just becoming more of an adult, and you know, balancing a checkbook and paying my own rent and stuff like that, and being able to be more of a skilled um, person, and you know, getting off my parents' payroll, you know. And um, but, you know, I what I learned in college of just my own, you know, communication skills and balancing time, and you know, because you're on your own, and you know, that was, you know, there was no one to there to say do my homework. I had to learn how to do everything and get it all done on my own, which, you know, for, for me then to do this job was I had to figure out how to do it all. You know, when I first started as Leroy's assistant, I mean, he would just throw tasks at me and just tell me to get him done. And I didn't know so much, and I would have to figure it out. And, um, you know, I asked a lot of questions of a lot of people. I, I was very lucky. My mom told me a long, uh, early on in life, if you have a question, ask it. What's the worst I'm going to say to you? No. And um, so at Def Jam, I, I asked so many questions of so many people because I just didn't know how to get a lot of things done, and um, especially also as he was handing me different departments. It, it was just, I was always very um, vulnerable with people. I never pretended to know all the answers. I always would really just come clean with everybody and be like, listen, I don't know shit about this. Can I pick your brain? And I find that um, when you ask somebody, can I pick your brain, somebody, it, it lowers people's defenses. Right. They don't think you're stealing their secrets. They actually want to be helpful. Right. And uh, I actually, you know, I have a huge um, college intern program at um, Atlantic and at the Warner Music Group. And I'm proud of the fact that we have all these college interns that come in and I always say to them, you know, it's on you to make your mark at our company. Because we then hire, whenever there's an assistant positioning open up, we all poll and we say, Paul Sinclair is here who runs our digital department, who lives somewhere near here. And we all poll each other and we say, who's the best intern of the semester? And then we say, hey, and we call that person up and we say, hey, you're graduating soon. We have a job about to open. Are you interested? And because that person made their mark in our building during their time. And, um, you know, college, I think. You know, just, I don't know what exactly the purpose is, except for me it was to help me grow up. Okay,
1: that's that's a good answer.
2: Yeah. All
1: right, so currency today. um, I think the Atlantic group, you have three in the top 10 this week?
2: Yeah, we have a lot of big hits this week. This was a good week for me to show up. I've got, uh, you know, Wale's album is number one this week. Furious 7 is now taking over the slot. Um, Wiz Khalifa, Charlie Puth single, See You Again um, is the number one single. Flo Rider, we brought him back. He's having a giant single. Ed Sheeran's single, thank God, is still sitting up there. And, and we just, Death Cab had a big album, and last week was Action Bronson's album. And so, yeah, we've, we've got a bunch of great stuff. You know? it's, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah.
1: What are, what are some of the things we can um, look forward to coming up between now and September that, um, that we should be?
2: Well, hopefully what's gonna happen is is now I'm gonna get the Action Bronson single, which he made a fantastic record with Mark Ronson called um, Baby on, Baby Blue, or Baby on Blue. Baby, baby. baby Blue, Baby Blue. Mm. Which is freaking awesome record. And it, it's seeing a baby act that's so amazing and so um, interesting that isn't like everything else. And you know, it's, I'm gonna work really hard to fight for this guy. And try to pop him off and make him a real a real guy with this song. Um, Charlie Puth, who's on the Wiz Khalifa song, the See You Again record. I'm gonna try and break him, you know, off of that. Um, what else am I working on? Um,
1: you got Nate.
2: Oh God, Nate Roos, um who from. went solo from Fun. Um, he is super important. We're gonna break him, God willing. Um, Twenty One Pilots, we just launched today, which. They have an incredible, incredible record. Um, There's a rapper from Atlanta called Young Thug, who I'm super um, excited about. Um, Meek is gonna come back. Um, We just dropped the Wale. Nipsey Huss. I mean, we got got a lot of good stuff coming. And then fall will hopefully be Coldplay and Bruno will come back.
1: It's great. Yeah. I wanna thank Julie for coming. I know she gave up an evening away from her family. And uh, I really appreciate her coming here, so let's give her oh, a
0: Oh, thank you. You've been listening to William Patterson University's Music Management Seminar Series on Music Biz 101 and more. If you missed any of this, just head over to our website, musicbiz101wp.com, or stitch your radio on your mobile device and download our podcast. I think it's time to say goodbye. Goodbye now. For Steve Leeds, our special guest, our esteemed and very valuable producer, Philip Goralkowski, and the good doctor, Esteban Marconi. I wish you an adios!